asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live from Altspeed Technologies, the Ask Noah Show starts right now. This is the show where we came to do all the things on Linux they said couldn't be done and take your questions on how to do the same. The phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It is a free call. 1-855-450-NOAH. It's 1-855-450-6624 or send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah Chalaya. I am your host. Delighted to be here with you as another episode of the Ask Noah Show kicks off this hour. Joining me is my co-host, Mr. Steve Ovens. Welcome in, sir. Good day. I'm trying to strike that balance between uh, sticking my head in the sand for mental sanity and uh, trying not to ignore the world as it goes by right now. Isn't it funny? How, so my wife and I talk about that sometimes. Doesn't it feel sometimes like you just want to li- you just want to stop lifing for a little bit just to kind of catch back up and then you'll come up for air when you're able? Yep. And sometimes you're just like, I just had a week last night, week after we chatted where I was just like, you know what? I just can't. And I turned off my email, my personal email for the entire week. And I, I had, didn't go on Twitter until this morning. And I just like, nope, I can't do things in the world right now. I go to my job because I have to. <laughs> so do you have like a coping mechanism for that? Or do you have like a decompression strategy? I know you run. I do run. Uh, normally, honestly, uh, it hasn't really affected me like that, like it has recently. Um, actually, just this past week, we won't, you know, we're not going to get into any of the, the world events, but just it was just enough crazy that from multiple angles that I was just like, you know what, I just can't deal with all of the vitriol coming from all around me. And I'm just going to, you know, if I go out in my neighborhood, everybody's pleasant. You know, the, the, the personal interactions when I when I run into people or, or friends or colleagues or whatever in real life is beautiful. You know, there's respect or whatever, but it, all of the vitriol that comes from online, it's just like, well, you know what? Here's the thing. When I, whenever people talk about, you know, oh, well, this person on Facebook offended me. I'm taking my own advice, which is normally then don't go on Facebook. <laughs> right? I'm surprised you're on Facebook at all. I'm not. I was referring to the general principle like i have my twitter account and that's where i get a bunch of that uh let's say build water comes in well i hope that this show helps you uh, helps you decompress a little bit and talking about linux and answering some people's questions gets us there absolutely yeah I- yep you know what it's always good to to get uh what would chris say a cleanse going on there you go all right well let's get into the emails Our first email comes in from Jeremy. Jeremy writes in and says, firstly, thanks for the show. My first comment, I actually tend to appreciate that the focus of the show is on Linux and doesn't often drift too far into political or otherworldly events. There was a comment of free speech regarding all the types of topics that you can find a bit shoot and rumble thousand times over. I don't see the point in parroting the same thing here. As tech people, we've probably already seen what you're about to bring to the conversation elsewhere. You know, we're on the internet all day, most days of the week. On to my question. I have a desktop that I'm setting up as a home lab server, and since you guys have much more experience with KVM setups, I figured I'd post and set up and ask for recommendations. So, the VM host I'm considering is a Ryzen 7 3700X, uh, 16 core, or 8 core, 16 threads, 64 gigs of RAM, 128 gigabyte SATA drive, with Ubuntu 2204. I've got a one terabyte ZFS pool mirrored with NVMe two one terabyte NVMe drives. A few questions have come to mind. First, I was able to remove the GPU and run it without it. This brought up an interesting question. What if I could reinstall Linux using TTY USB or something similar from a boot disk and have no initial GPU? Second, how should I manage the creation and destruction of the VMs? I was thinking Vagrant or something similar. Thirdly, are there any other tips that my setup would be appreciated? Thanks so much, Jeremy. So let's start here. So I, I, neither Steve or I are afraid of our political leanings. We just try to keep the show focused on what we came here to do, which is to help you leverage open source and Linux to better your life in some way. And very infrequently does politics play into that. Um, when it does, we address it head on because you know, we're not going to hide from the truth. So 
I'm glad that you appreciate that topics don't often get there. When they do, we're going to address them head on, then we'll move on. As is that is, it, is that an accurate summation? Is that enough said, Steve, about the first part of that? Perfect. As for the actual question of VM, so Steve, what do you think of Jeremy's ask of a Ryzen 7 3700, 8 core, 64 gigs of RAM? You think you can run a VM host on there? Yeah, absolutely. Depends on what you're what you're actually hosting. But uh, I took a look before the show just to check in. I have a Ryzen 5 3600X and 96 gigs of RAM in my VM host, and I'm running I'm running nine hosts on my VM host here and one of them is like guest? just a beast it's yeah sorry guest thank you uh and one of them's a beast like it it's i've allocated 50 gigs of ram for it so uh i'm running things like confluence and a docker uh registry and tons of stuff like that so if you're not doing anything crazy oh i also have a plex server on there if you're not doing anything crazy you, you'll be more than sufficient i would say the only thing you might need to do is watch the disk space. If you are going to use ZFS, I would recommend putting compression on. That'll help you save some space for those QCOW images. Um, it's also, you'll also get some more performance out of that because with the with the speed that the NVMe can actually with, withdraw the, or pardon me, pull the information off, especially the, con- the compressed information into the CPU, uh, it's going to be much more efficient than trying to pull a huge chunk off the disk. So I think that's all good. The only thing that I would say is, um, depending on what kind of workloads, you might need a little more RAM. I would say uh, you're way good as far as specifications go for for your your host. I don't think I would worry about that one one bit. Um, when you get into removing the GPU, so I guess. I, my mind splits here and goes one of two directions. So on one hand, it's exciting because if you don't need the GPU to run the host, then you could potentially pass the GPU off to one of your guests, and that provides for uh, some interesting possibilities. I guess I fail to understand, barring doing something like that, what is the advantage of installing Linux with TTY USB? What, uh, what is he getting at there? Yeah, I, I guess the idea is just to have a smaller footprint, um, although there are GPUs that barely pull any power. So I'm not really sure. To be honest, I run all of my VM, my servers with some form of GPU, even if it's just a really old version. Even the servers you buy and stick in the data center, they all have GPUs. They're just really small ones. They, mm. they do a basic function. Um, and I would say that if you ever tried to do something with remote um, screen share, for example, if you try to do the, um, like if you have a DRAC or um, an ILO, one of those devices that allows you to remote into this the system, the functionality of actually getting a terminal on those boxes will not work without a video card, which is why the servers come with that. So just, that would be my disclaimer there is be aware of what the downsides are if you uh, are able to install without a GPU. I will say this. I have been a so we're we're testing this for one client and about to uh, look into doing it for a second client is running the running the host as just a host and then passing all of the host's resources through to the guest. Um, and so in both of those environments, they are primarily running Windows guests and want to be able to use Windows, but want some of the snapshotting slash reliability stability features that come with Linux. And so we're coming up with some creative ways to do that. And when he said, hey, I can boot without the GPU, I can run without it, that's potentially interesting. I would agree. I think there is some interesting things you can do with it. I just don't think the interesting thing that I would do with it is try to run the host without graphics. I I don't see the advantage there. Uh, As far as creating and managing the creation and destruction of the VMs, okay, well, so the go-to, the 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 go-to thing is I would probably start with something like cockpit. Um, that's going to give you the most, I guess, equal experience to something like Proxmox, um, you know, or VMware, where you're just going to have a web UI that you load and then you can create the VM and console into it and all the things. If you want the most reliable, most robust way to do it, then I would spend some time and learn Versh because Everything you're going to do in Cockpit, everything you're going to do in Vert Manager, literally on the back end is all just translating to Versh commands. 
Um, Steve, thoughts or uh, experience with uh, Vagrant? Uh, so I haven't used Vagrant for a long time. I think the last time I used it was in 2017. It's fine. It's still an active project. Um, I use. I still use Vert Manager, and I think you're, I'm gonna going to hang on to that until they pry it out of my cold, dead hands, um, or become so antiquated that I can't do something. I just like it. I know a cockpit's getting better, um, and I have nothing against it. I just I'm less inclined to fire up a a, a browser to do my VM workload stuff. So. That's all I would so say. So I, I don't disagree with any of that. I, I would tell you that I I too was a I was a, a, a f- just shy of a fanboy of Vert Manager, um, much to the chagrin of of a, a lot of the a lot of the newer kids that were obsessed with the shiny web stuff. However, I will say this: uh, when you say when they pull it out of my my cold dead hands, they're trying very hard. Um, there are certain networking things that just don't work right in Vert Manager. I've had trouble with them in Vert Manager, and they now work flawlessly in Cockpit. Um, there are still functionalities like you know snapshots that uh, work flawlessly in Vert Manager and don't work in Cockpit. So we're kind of in like no man's land right now. Um, but guess what? Verse works all of the places all of the time without any exception. And one of the things I like about Vert Manager is you can go find out what command is being executed, what verse command is being executed underneath the hood. So uh, pick your flavor and give it a shot. I would suggest doing this in a two-stage approach. If you've never done a, a VM host before, I would set it up once and I would play with it and I would get all of the kinks worked out and get it the way you like it. Then I would blow it away and set it up for real. And then I would rely on it. Um, Write it down. Yeah, documentation is everything. If you and, and you know it's, it's funny when I when we're onboarding a new employee and we set them down, we walk them through something, whatever it is. When they get done, oftentimes the very first thing I tell them to do, blow it away and do it again. And I usually get this shocked look, like I can't do that. That's terrifying to me. What if I can't get here? And if you can't get there right now, while it's still fresh in your head, right after you've done it, the chances of you being able to replicate that process two years down the road, three years down the road, when a drive dies, or you upgrade the machine or whatever, are slim to none. So like Steve said, if you document your process from start to finish of here's exactly the steps I took, exactly how I did them, the next time you go through and then follow it to make sure that you're just you're 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 following the guide blind the second time around, you're not going to have any trouble. And so then when you skate down the road two, three years and go, how did I? Oh, yeah. Here, let me go look. That's what I did. Yeah. The important part there is cut and paste because mm. you don't want to interpret your own uh, your own instructions, because if you have to interpret your own instructions, you won't remember what it was that you interpreted when so, you go to do it again. So one of the things that we do when we when we write uh when we write out run books like that, one person will write them. Whoever did the, the exploration process will write it out. And then we have somebody else actually run it while the rest of us are sitting there. And the concept there is if something is unclear or ambiguous, it's easy to spot it when somebody who's never done that process before is they don't have a choice but to follow it blindly because they don't even really understand what they're doing, you know, presumably. And so then when they come across something and go, well, how do I do? Well, what I meant was, oh, OK, well, if that's what you meant, let's phrase it this way. Or let's put it in there so that we know that the next time and you can you can work out a lot of issues. So if you do that yourself, like Steve said, follow it as close as you can blind copy, just monkey see monkey do. And if it doesn't work, then your documentation is lacking. Our second email comes in from Charlie. Charlie writes in. Good eye, everyone. These overpriced NAS retail solutions seem to be getting themselves out of the market. Is it now just better to build your own NAS box or pay somebody $100 or $200 to build a custom system for you? I recently came across this video that mentions Synology's NAS is no longer supports drive types that they don't sell. USB hard drives versus Synology NAS, which is better? And he links to an Odyssey channel. Also, thoughts on refurbished SAS drives via Amazon. Are they worth the discounted price? Charlie. So I'm going to work backwards. Steve, SAS, SATA, whatever, would you buy a used hard drive and put it into production? Uh, if it was an enterprise class drive and you were able to be reasonably confident about how long the power on hours were, then sure. Really? That's, yeah. Why not? There's, that was not the answer I expected. I would not do it for a consumer class drive. No mm. way. It's not happening. 
but enterprise drives are meant to be in racks where the vibration of, you know, 50 other servers are mm-hmm. shaking the rack in some minor way and they're mm-hmm. meant to be powered on 24/7, you know, 365 is trite. Let's let's say, well, I don't know, 3650 days, mm. you know, like they're they're meant to go 10 years. So if you if you get one that's 2 years old um and you trust the seller when they say that it is two years old and they have a replacement policy that's like, you know, whatever, if there's a problem with it, you plug it in, you, you run your, um, your smart mon utils to figure out how long it's been on for and go, go with it. I wouldn't do it for a backup drive. Right. Okay. But if you're talking about, I need to get a bunch of drives into a server, I don't see why not. So I would have I would have gone the other direction entirely with that. But I'll tell you what, you make a you make a compelling argument. So here's what I'll add to that then. I would say that if you're relying on any drive ever, then you're you're a fool. We just had we literally just had last week. We had a client, they bought a server, they shipped it to us, said, Hey, can you guys host it for us in your data center? We said no problem. We drove it down to the data center, we got it plugged in, we got it all configured, everything was good, it was online, they were replicating, everybody was happy, we drove home. Not even a week later, the dr- a drive dies. And this is a brand new enterprise drive in a brand new server. Mm-hmm. And it didn't even make it a week. So th- you don't have any guarantees with any drive ever. Ever. And yeah. so your, your, your backup plan slash your failover plan shouldn't include, well, I have these drives and they should last me anyway. So and th- from that perspective... Sure, buy the used drive. If you get a year out of it, get two years out of it, three years out of it, great. I mean, my anecdotal uh, story here is I have an NVMe drive that I put in my laptop, I want to say, a year and a half ago. It's already on its way out. Like, if it has a read and a write activity at the same time, it basically causes the entire thing to become sludge. So if I'm running a browser, for example, and I do an LS on the the system, (laughs) everything stops. Like, just completely stops. Um, and I was able to reproduce this. Like, I did this by launch. If I launch Steam, it kills it because Steam has the built-in browser, right? So it's trying mm-hmm. to read the games and do the updates and stuff like that. It, it literally murders the device. It, it, I have to power it off if I try and launch Steam. Um, and it's only a year and a half old. Man. Is that the one you were talking about and said, hey, it's time for me to... Uh... Yep. Okay. But you're not going to lose any data because you have a solid backup plan. So it's okay. Yeah, I don't, nothing, I'm going to lose my games, but whatever. Uh, I'm not really worried about that. If there are saved games that don't work with the Steam cloud, I plug them into NextCloud. And that's not to back them up as much as it is because I want to be able to play them on my desktop when I get off my laptop or vice versa. <laughs> so that's fair. Uh, our third email comes in from Peter. Peter writes in and says, hi, no one, Steve. In episode 280, a listener asked a question about a digital signage solution. Unfortunately, most of the solutions that are mentioned in connection with digital signage are often cloud-based. In addition, the so-called free tier has limitations on the amount of data or number of slides and so on. For this very reason, when one of my friends asked me about this, I built my own solution, which I make available for free on GitHub. The client and optionally the server are based on Arch Linux ARM and on a Raspberry Pi. The GitHub repo in English, and he links to it, Talk and presentation in German, and he links to it. So there are two components here. He's got the server. He's got the client. And essentially, it it's a, a WordPress backend. And so you set up your channels. You set up your slides. You set up your displays, and the whole thing runs. And what I like – so there are three things here that are exciting to me. So the first thing is he's absolutely right. Mo- every – Digital signage solution that I've come across, even the open source ones, have some sort of paid subscription model. Now, I want to be clear. I don't disagree with paying for open source. In fact, Steve and I were having a discussion before the show. I strongly believe that we, sh- we in general, should be putting more money into open source if we want those tools to be around. At the same time, it is exceptionally frustrating that we print shirts and jackets and sweatshirts and fill our website and marketing material with slogans about owning your own technology and being in control of the infrastructure and then put in a solution that somebody has to pay somebody else to be able to use it. It kind of feels dirty to me. So I have been looking and indeed would be very interested in a true open source solution that you can contribute, that you should contribute to, but that you don't have to pay for if you want to continue to use the thing. 
Um, the second thing I like about it is that the guy who did such a thing listens to the show and wrote in to let us know about his project. So if you're looking for a digital signage solution, I highly, highly recommend that you take a look at Raz. I'm going to probably pronounce this wrong, but Raz is Raz E signage, I think is how you pronounce it. Um, but we'll have a link for you in the show notes of podcast.asknoahshow.com and a huge, huge thank you. It's Raz Pi signage. Raz Pi signage. That makes way more sense, doesn't it? Huge thanks for Peter for writing in uh, to share that with us. We really appreciate it. Again, we'll have a link in the show notes. Our fourth email comes in from David. David writes in and says, hey, guys, have you done any shows on running Linux on Android phones using Turbux? While Termux is not Linux, it does provide an enormous library of Unix tools and languages and a familiar CLI with a shell of your choice. If Termux is not enough, you can install any Linux distro on top of Termux using Proot depending on your phone. You can install a minimal server or even a full-blown latest Jammy Jellyfin Kubuntu 22 desktop. This does not require rooting. It's pretty amazing. He links to wiki.termux.com. Your shows with Steve have been fantastic and a great source for learning Linux and the community. It is my number one show. I'm a new listener, but I've been enjoying going back through your past episodes. I very much enjoyed your recent interviews with the founder of ProtonMail and Matrix. Your discussions with Steve about namespaces have been truly enlightening. I believe that this may be related to how Proot works. Thanks again for the resources you provide to the Linux community. I'm looking forward to listening to your next show. Have a great day, David. So, Steve, obviously, thank you, David, for your your compliments. We we really appreciate it. Digging into your actual question, have we done any shows on Android running Termux? No. Uh, how to ask this question, Steve? If you had the opportunity, would you ever do any sort of Linuxy system administration e things from your phone? Nope. Uh, I'm I'm a big guy. Like I'm tall and I'm wide, and so that means that typing on a even even typing on like my nexus 6 is is a bit of a pain and i guess i now have uh, i don't know i've got a pixel 5 or something like that but they're barely you manageable you, for that, me. hold on a second let's not drive by that you use your phone so infrequently and, and so are so not attached to it you don't even know for sure what it is not a clue. It's sitting right here. <laughs> I'm holding it in my phone in my hand. I flipped it over. I'm like, yes, it's got the G. So this is a Google branded one. <laughs> I have no idea. It's definitely not a three. It's probably a, a Pixel Five. No idea. <laughs> okay. Uh, no, it's uh, it's a device for me to actually you know get calls on and two factor texting because <laughs> that's honestly what its biggest use is. <laughs> <laughs> so you and I are incredibly similar in 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 that regard. So I. I know what kind of phone I have, so I mean, I guess we differ a little bit there. But I, I agree with you entirely, and I think we're of the same mind there. That I do not base anything off of a phone. In fact, I go to great lengths to make sure that my phone number isn't tied to a phone, my SMS number isn't tied to a phone, and if there's any app that is required uh, for me to have the app to do the thing, I just won't do that thing, or I won't use that service. I'll Where's the hundred percent? I, I want a hundred percent emoji on that one. <laughs> <laughs> I will use if you. So it's funny too, right? Like rewind fifteen years, ten fifteen years ago, I was with a bank and I was very frustrated because they didn't have any mobile access. Like the the, the site trying to access it on mobile was pathetic. And this was back when I had like a Palm phone. And there was another bank, a competing bank, that had a a really decent mobile site. And I switched to that bank. And then later on, when I moved to Android, they came out with an Android app and I download the Android app and been very happy with it. If that bank ever decides that you have to have the app or you have to have, you know, so they can track your location or fraud prevention or whatever the excuse is where they have to have the app, that will be the moment where I'll switch banks again. And I was thinking about that in my head, like, where is my line there with it? Yeah, that would be over the line. Yeah, that I would accept that. And I start thinking to myself, if I, once they once we get to the point where I have to use Android or I have to use iOS because I have to have the app to do the thing, that's my line in the sand. I'm going somewhere else. I'm just not doing it. And so uh, when I start looking at doing system administration, 
I can't think of a less appealing platform to do that on than a phone. I don't want that to take away from the fact that it's incredibly cool that you can run Termox on a phone. It's incredibly cool that you can get a native uh, shell on your phone. It's incredibly awesome that you can install distros to include 2204 and run that, and it doesn't require rooting. I don't even know how that's possible. It's so cool. Um, But I don't know that I would do that. No, I, I definitely wouldn't. And I'll... I'll echo your sentiments about having to do something. So when I was migrating here to the U.S., uh, one of the Canadian financial institutions, like the the only way, the only way they would give me the paperwork was through their silly app. <laughs> and so I resurrected. I'm not kidding. I went and found the oldest, crappiest phone that I could find that that I could still put a modern version of of lineage on, mm-hmm. and I resurrected it just for the sole purpose of installing the app on it. And that's it. And it went right back in the drawer. Steve, you're my spirit animal. <laughs> but really, though, it, it, it is a function, right? If that line will never go back to the other side of that line. So 10 years ago, when you wanted to come into the U.S., they would hand you paperwork. And if you didn't have a smartphone, they'd give you the paperwork. You'd fill it out and send it back in. Whatever whatever magical point in time that we crossed that line where we said, OK, now we're going to require these forms, these phones, we're never going back. We're never going back the other direction. And the problem with that is... When you install that app, a couple of things are are universally true. First, there is the possibility to get access to the camera, the microphone, location services, those kinds of things. The other thing that is true, they can make the app not functional. It won't even launch unless you give it the permissions that it requested. So this concept or this this silly idea that, well, Android cares about privacy or iOS cares about privacy, so they give you the control. No, they don't. I mean – they're there, but at the end of the day, the app just won't open if you don't grant it the permissions that it wants. So we we are very, very, very quickly ushering ourselves into a time and into a society where that becomes your digital passport to do things, and I don't like that at all. The other thing I don't like about it is it removes the concept of software freedom. If I switch over to a you know um, uh, UbiPorts or Sailfish OS or whatever – where is my how do how then do I participate in the world if I don't want to use the same smartphone that you want to use? Yeah, you know, and on top of that, um, not touching on the political, but just some food for thought. There are uh, on the Android uh, Play Store, there's 300,000 apps that have been identified that will sell your data that are, you know, they're legitimate apps. They're not there's nothing scammy about them. You know, they, they're up front, they, they follow all the rules, but they legitimately scoop up your data for their own purposes, and then they will sell it on top of that. And these are the ones that we know of. So yeah. it, it's one of those things where uh, my phone sits on my desk every chance that I can, and it just looks like I'm home all the time. <laughs> like I said, you're my spirit animal. I want to be more like you in that regard. Our fifth email comes in from Glenn. Glenn uh, writes in and says, hey, no one, Steve, really enjoying your show. I followed you over from your previous podcast a while back when you moved your server infrastructure into your own data center. You mentioned that you send security camera feeds into your data center instead of recording them locally on your customer site. I have a couple of questions for you. One, does sending the security recordings from your customers cameras not saturate their Internet connection? Two. With recordings coming in from multiple uh, customers with multiple cameras, does that not saturate or fill up your data center pipe? Third, what kind of software do you use for recording from multiple sites? Thanks in advance, Glenn. So, great question, Glenn. Um, so, a few things. So, first of all, this is very, very much in the early stages of 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 what we're doing. Um, we have not fine-tuned all of this. Um, so, we're still hashing out what works well, what doesn't work well. And at the moment, this isn't a service that we offer to customers. So, we're playing with it, and we've got a couple of people that are – customers that are friendly enough with us that I can say, hey, would you mind if I look at this or try this and they're okay with it? It's not something that we are widely deploying. Um, but to answer your questions of what I know so far, uh, does sending the recordings for your customers not saturate the internet connection? Yes, it does. Um, and so we've seen that in one of two ways. One is with this, what we're looking at is like a cloud-hosted security system. Um, it would absolutely fill up their bandwidth if you get more than like three, four cameras. Uh, 1080p streams, they're occupying four to five megs uh, each. And so if you have a 10 or 15 meg up, you can saturate that pretty quick with just like three or four cameras. Um, we've seen that also when we try to have a customer that 
they don't want to pay for two NVRs, so they have an NVR at one site, and we send remote camera feeds for for, for the other sites. That will uh, saturate their their internet connection on one or both sides. Although to be fair, it's usually the up that tanks first. So. Uh, the way that we've got a, oh, and so with your second question, does it saturate the data center? Not a chance because the data center, uh, we can burst up to, uh, we could, it, no, there's enough bandwidth in the data center that that's not really an issue. We'd just buy more bandwidth if we needed it. So uh, can you clarify just quickly, um, mm-hmm. for my own understanding, are you in the case of the first question, is the, is your data center intended to be acting as the, um, uh, what do they call it? The box that holds all of the recordings? Yes. Like live? So, yes. Ah, I see. Okay. Because I was thinking like QoS or some sort of throttling in order to send the files back. Well, but you're so, doing it live. Well, so let's get to that. So, well, kind of. So in, in the event where we have the NVR in the data center uh, where we send a recording, which is a process we've tried, NVR in one place, send the camera feeds over the internet, does it saturate the internet connection? Answer that question is yes. So... How do we get around that? But, you, but that's never going to happen in the data center. It'll happen on the upside of the customer's internet connection because they're, you know, even commercial internet, they don't want you hosting stuff. Um, so you'll get, you look at plans, it'll be something like 90 down, 10 up, 200 down, 11 up. Uh, and so that's what gets tanked first. Definitely an issue. So how do we get around that? Access has the ability to store the files in, you can do three things. One is you can stream the live feeds over to the NVR, uh, which tanks the internet connection. Second way you can do it is put a NAS on site and have the cameras do the recordings. It will timestamp them, put them into folders to the corresponding month, day, year, and then you ZFS send or ZFS replicate that data set up to the data center. So in that scenario, there is a local component there. There file server that is storing the recordings and it's just syncing up to the data center. So in this case, in in that scenario, it's not real time. It's just backing up once a night. Um, But that prevents the problem of a constant uh, tax on their internet connection. And it just happens at night. Problem there, obviously, is if you have a ton of motion or a ton of cameras, you get to the end of the night. What happens when you don't finish syncing all of that data up to the data center? You get to the next day. And even if you rate limit it, um, if you have to have some day where there's less motion or less recording so that it can catch up, so to speak. Um, again, still a process unfolding, so I'm just telling you what we've learned so far. The third way that you can do it, let's say the customer says, I don't want an on-site box or I don't want the recording stored anywhere on site where my employees could get to them or whatever the reason is. The third thing that you can do is you can put an SD card inside of the camera itself and you can allow the camera to sync to a remote file share. So that's the third thing that we've uh, we've run with. The fourth way that we've played with is uh, Access actually supports multiple streams. So you can do a full 4K live feed when they're pulling up the cameras and looking for stuff. And then you can do a smaller, uh, like a 720 or, or a 1080 stream, uh, uh, you know, P recording and uh, use that for the recording. So you're not tanking your Internet so much or taxing it so much when you're doing that. Uh, as far as software that we're using, so there's two main ones. The, the, the big one that we're using is Surveillance Station, um, and that is the uh, – that's what I would recommend if you're looking for something. It's it's all the way there. It works really, really well, um, and I have basically no complaints about it whatsoever. Uh, the only downside to Surveillance Station is it is not open source. It's a proprietary solution, which means it only runs on Synology. And at AltaSpeed for us, if it's not open source, then it's a temporary placeholder until the open source thing gets there. So the thing that I have my eye closest on is Shinobi, S-H-I-N-O-B-I, Shinobi. Um, I'll have a link for you in the show notes, but it's a fantastic looking UI uh, that does uh, an NVR solution, completely open source, top to bottom. You can run it on any Linux box. Um, it just is lacking a couple of features. And so once they get there and we get all of that tied up, then I'll be able to, then we'll be able to fully move on to that. But that is our long-term plan is to use something like ZoneMinder or Shinobi to host in the data center because I just don't like the idea of buying three, four thousand dollar boxes for Synology. And even then, even if I was willing to do that, and even if I could somehow get around the bandwidth problems that those have, the other issue that I'm going to run into, uh, fairly quick is that 
you can't really elegantly gang them together. So if you know the 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 highest device count that I can get is like seventy five devices on a single unit, and then I have to purchase another one. So then you'd have like, what happens if you have one client that has 76 cameras? Do you tell them go here for these and there for those? And there is a way to gang them together, but it doesn't work super well. So uh, looking at open source solutions, it's a continuing unfolding process. Again, I'm trying to be open and honest and transparent with you. If I had all the answers, I would give them to you. That's what I know so far. Our sixth email comes in from John. John writes in, says, hey, Noah, you switched me to Linux. I had private Internet access and it was great, but then it got bought out and I didn't renew my subscription. I was thinking about moving to ProtonVPN, but I hold off when I saw the price difference. I don't mind paying more for a better service, but then I got P, uh, then I got private Internet access. Please come back pricing and I'm having a hard time going to ProtonVPN at five times the price difference. Have you heard of any problems with PIA under the current ownership? I like Proton VPN, but is there a better VPN company out there? Thanks, John. So here's the deal. Like many of you, when PIA got sold, I was a little concerned. I don't go off of internet reviews. I don't go off of customer testimonials. I don't go off of chat room chatter. I don't go off of Reddit posts. I go off of court cases. I want to see a VPN company get drug into court. I want to see a judge tell them that they're required by subpoena to provide records. And then I want to see that VPN company say, we don't have them. Because that's the only way I would truly believe, understand, and know that, yes, indeed, this company is not keeping Records, which is what they all claim that they're doing. Um, so if you if you go by that metric, I've not seen anything that tells me that PIA is any less of a B- VPN than it was before they sold. So take that for what it's worth. I personally have switched my VPN over to Molvad, and here's why. It's directly from their uh, molvad.net slash help slash open source. Quote, at Molvad, we believe... In the open source model in which the program source code is made available or open to anyone for viewing and using in a broader perspective, we believe that this sharing of knowledge will advance the world more quickly and help it to become a better place. The majority of software that we use and even develop ourselves is open source. So when you go to Molvad site and look at what they have to offer, you'll notice a couple of things. First of all, they absolutely have a clear record of we don't really keep records of things and even when you go to create an account you don't really create an account it just generates a random number and that's what you use as your account to sign in they allow you to pay with cash so if you want to pay uh you you can pay with cash uh, you can pay with Bitcoin, you can pay with Monero, you can pay with Bankwire, PayPal uh, if you can think of a payment method they'll likely take your money that way and uh the other, and again, so open source based company lets you pay uh, completely anonymously if you'd like, uh, is not terribly expensive, five, uh, five euros a month. Um, they don't have a free tier, but uh, like they explain, it just costs money to have those things. Uh, so if you want to have a good VPN, you should probably pay for it. Um, as far as uh, Proton VPN, I love Proton VPN. I am a Proton. Actually, both Steve and I are paid Proton Mail users. Uh, very much love Proton Mail and the service and Proton VPN. Andy is a good friend of the show. We have him on frequently. Uh, so I don't have any bad. There's nothing wrong with Proton VPN. Um, I've I've just personally uh, I've just personally switched to to, to Molvad. So. Uh, if you like the pricing of private internet access, I have no reason to tell you to go away from that. If you were thinking about going to Proton VPN, I don't think that's a bad choice. I think that uh, if you were looking for a third alternative or if you're asking what I use personally, it would be Molvad. Steve, are you a VPN user at all? I do have a VPN that I use. Um, it's for no other reason than I got a deal on it and it was not. I don't use it for the privacy like like people think i use it to kind of secure my phone for if i'm on a stray wi-fi network for example so i use surfshark um i have no issue with them but i also and they claim that they don't do any logging um but like you i don't put a lot of stock in that and it works fine because like i said i'm using it primarily to make sure that 
I'm somewhat obfuscated on a, you know, a strange network mm. or wherever I'm roaming. So, um, don't don't do what I do if you're really worried about privacy. We're going to take a quick break. We're going to stop in the Linux Newswire newsroom and get an update from JT, find out what's going on in the open source room. When we come back, we'll dig into your feedback that you've submitted via our questions bot. So if you're in the chat room at geeklab.ninja, message at questions, linuxdelta.com. That is our questions bot. We'll put the questions right in front of our face and we'll answer those shortly. From the Linux Newswire newsroom, this is the Week in Review with JT. Researchers have uncovered a highly evasive Chinese surveillance tool using the Berkeley packet filter BPF. The malware, dubbed BPF Door, is present on thousands of Linux systems. Its controller has gone almost completely unnoticed by endpoint protection vendors despite it being in use for at least five years. This is the second malware type using BPF in Linux for covert surveillance revealed this year, following Pangu Lab's discovery of an apparent NSA backdoor, which they named BVP47 in February 2022. Twelve students in Denmark have designed a RISC-V dual-core chip with open-source software. The chip is being manufactured in the United States at no cost through a Google initiative with Foundry Skywater. Microsoft has open-sourced a few older applications in the past few years, including MS-DOS 1.0 and 2.0, and the original Windows File Manager. But now the company has published code for the Microsoft 3D Movie Maker. Container orchestrator Kubernetes will now include cryptographically signed certificate using the SigStore project created last year by the Linux Foundation, Google, Red Hat, and Purdue University in a bid to protect against supply chain attacks. The SigStore certificates are being used in the just-released Kubernetes version 1.24 and all future releases. Meta has announced their new model, OPT, which is a GPT-3 competitor, and have completely open-sourced it. The Wine project has released development version 7.8, which arrives with some tweaks to drivers that could make Windows games work better on Linux. The move could ultimately make Linux more attractive to gamers, including on Valve's Steam Deck. The developers of Arch Linux have added a text-based tool that makes the installation process a bit easier. The security-focused Tails Live Linux distribution has announced the availability of version 5.0. It brings with it some major changes to applications, including a new PGP app called Cleopatra. The Trinity Desktop Environment development team has released version 14.0.12. The Trinity Desktop is a free Libre fork of KDE 3.5, which was launched back in 2010. And finally, the GCC developers have announced the release of GCC 12.1. Thanks, JT. Uh, We'll head into questions from the questions bot. So the first one comes in from the end beta. He asked, I wanted to chime in regarding... The SMB mounting issues that KDE have been mentioned over the past couple of episodes. I'm not an expert, but I looked into this a while ago. And while trying to work with MTP, KDE uses the Keo by default for mounting external shares. Keo is a DBus activated system that aims to provide a common API for applications to consume regardless of what type of share you are mounting. However, only KDE applications, such as Dolphin, tend to actually implement Kia support. And so non-KDE apps may have issues interacting with it. Kio Fuse is a package that presents the Fuse interface for Kio mounted shares, which is more similar to how GVFS works, and may provide a better experience for non-KDE applications. GNOME has a similar system in GIO, which is currently used back to back GVFS. KDE has Keo, Keo Fuse, and GNOME has GeoGVFS. But I think GVFS is installed by default, whereas Keo Fuse is not. I hope this helps and is not more confusing. Also, it should be noted that not all Keo slaves have associated Keo Fuse implementations. MTP, for example, doesn't have one exposed due to bugs in the existing implementation. At least that was not the case when I was looking at it. Huge thank you, man. Like, this is really fantastic. I, Steve, would, would it be accurate to say that that is the most concise explanation that we've, uh, we've gone through yet? It makes a lot of sense to me. I mean, if GNOME has got one, it, it would be, uh, it would make sense that, that KDE would have something along the same process. Really appreciate this. So I'm, I'm going to give this a shot. Interestingly enough, the, the, I was referencing, so I have, I work uh, part time. At a church, and they're attached to a mall, uh, which means that it can be 
like a good 15 minutes for me to walk from one end to the other if I've got to get from one place to, to the other place. So a frequent workflow of mine is I have to access my network documentation to look something up. And if my laptop is back in my office, I got to walk all the way back down there to do that. And so what I've been doing is storing it on a Linux box and SSHing SSHing into that box to reference the, the documentation. What I'd like to do is put it onto a Samba share and then be able to access it from any computer with the right credentials. And uh, so far, the ability to mount and edit files directly on a Samba share has been my holdup. So I'm going to give this a shot tomorrow and, and I'll let you guys know. But thank you for writing in and letting us know. Sunjam also wrote in and says, in response to episode 283, caller James and Fedora spins. LXDE is open box and XORG. It is exactly what you're looking for. LXDE equals open box as the window manager, and you can then boot solely into open box by selecting it on the login screen. You'll want to confirm on Fedora that on Fedora LXDE support for open box since it requires XORG. I know that Fedora focuses on Wayland and I've never used it. Good luck. Any follow up to that, Steve? Or? Pretty nope, much says not it all. really. That was pretty much concise. Our pick of the week this week is PDF Sandwich. You can learn more at Tobias-LZ.de. So PDF Sandwich is a program that generates a sandwich OCR PDF file. So example, uh, for example, a PDF file which contains only images, no text, and will be processed by optical character recognition or OCR. So the, for, for those of you that don't speak geek, it's essentially taking a what is a PDF document that has text and it's looking at, so if you take a picture, let's say of a dictionary, uh, or that's a bad example. Let's take, you take a picture of a magazine and you, uh, you want to extract the text from that magazine. Well, that magazine picture isn't text. It's an image. It's an image of text, but it's an image. So how do you turn that into text? There is no way that you can scroll over with your cursor and select the text. So what OCR does is it looks at that and says, Hey, in, we make a T by making a line down like this and a line across like that. So if I see that, that is obviously represented by the character T, and it will then process that. So PDF Sandwich is a program that will allow you uh, to to do that, and it is available as a command line tool, which is useful for OCR, uh, OCR scan books or journals. It's also able to recognize page layouts even for multi-column text. Uh, is they have a they have builds available for macOS, Windows, and Linux, uh, so it's fairly straightforward to install and use, um, and uh, an absolute critical tool if you're trying to modernize uh, anything that you have laying around. And that has been a topic that's come up quite a few times: is hey, if you've got things that you're scanning or things that you're doing. If you're scanning paper documents, you may want to turn those into text. Or if you had a contract that you signed, you may want to have the actual text of that document available. And so PDF Sandwich is a great way for you to do that. So you can check it out again, tobias-lz.de. I'll have a link for you in the show notes at podcast.asknoahshow.com. Our gadget of the week is the Palm PVG 100. Uh, so... This device is really cool. It, it is not a recent device. It hasn't just come out. It's been out for a little while. Um, but essentially, it's a tiny little cell phone. In fact, so tiny that they don't even call it a cell phone. They call it a companion device. Um, I don't know that I would refer to it that way because it runs, it basically runs Android. And so you can install anything that you could run on Android. But the way that I've chosen to use this is Sleuth in our, in our chat room has developed a community management bot that we use. And so that's Marlin. You see him. Uh, for those of you that are, were not in on the inside joke, uh, it's a reference to Finding Nemo. I, I'm like Dory. I forget everything. And so Marlin kind of keeps me on track. When are we starting the show? Who is asking questions? What's going on? What am I supposed to get out? All those things. And so you see that happening at geeklab.ninja. So a, a while back, I asked him, I said, hey, I would like to have Marlin do more stuff. Could you fork Marlin and could you bring him over into Ultispeed? I got more work for him, stuff to keep me keep me on track. Okay, so we did that. And the, 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 the long story longer, it allows me to exist in a bunch of matrix chats and the bot sits there and listens for things that it would know I would need to know about. So if there's a critical alert uh, from one of our clients, if somebody needs my attention, 
any of those things, it takes that message and it deposits it into a chat that is delivered to the PVG 100. And so this is a tiny, tiny little device that I carry with me 24 seven, 365 and allows me it, it, I can't look at other chats by design. I mean, you could install full element, but by design, can't look at other chats. I can't accidentally get sucked into things. I just have the ability to know, hey, my attention is needed here, there, or elsewhere, and then I can go back. And so if you're not using it as a primary device, I found the battery to be acceptable. I'm at 88%, and we're at almost 7 o'clock at night. It's been on all day. Uh, the speakers are good enough. Uh, it has a touch uh, a touchscreen keyboard. It has uh, Type-C charging. Uh, it's just a great little device. So the Palm PVG 100, again, I'll have links for you in the show notes. Um, I bought it used off of eBay. I think I paid $75 and I couldn't be happier with it. They do have lineage OS devices or uh, images, excuse me, available. So if you want to run a freedom uh, respecting software, hey, we are looking for your input. So Every so often, Steve and I do uh, a most of the time the show is driven by your questions, whatever you call in and ask about or whatever you talk about. That's what that's what we bring to the table. And if there isn't a lot of feedback, then we substitute that with some sort of an interview. The other thing that we've done is we try to collect topics from the community that are of interest to you, something that you want to know about. And so what we want to talk about is what is the next topic if we were to do a learning session, an opportunity for you to absorb Linux knowledge? What would you want to hear about? And so some options, and Steve, chime in here. Uh, some options off the top of my head would be uh, we've been asked, I think, for another networking segment, so we could certainly do that. I know I would like to learn more about uh, C groups and namespaces, and uh, we I would, I would like to deep, dig deeper into that. Um, I've been doing a lot with Ansible recently. So if you joined us for our last community night last Thursday, we dug, uh, we walked you through how to set up an element server. And I think from start to finish, it was like four minutes. If you just did all of the things and you weren't sitting there explaining it, it's literally anybody from any experience level could do it. Um, if you can, if you know your name, you know your email address, you can generate some passwords and you know how to type a single command, uh, you can set up a matrix stack using uh, Ansible. So if you wanted, we wanted to dig in there, that would be something. Um, Steve, you have any other thoughts of things that would potentially be useful or interesting to people? Sure. I mean, when, when I end up chatting with like-minded people, oftentimes it's not necessarily the technology as much as like, how, how do I interact with these big corporations in my day-to-day -day job? Because mm. I, I have the unique position to kind of float between companies. I spend four months here and two months there and you know sometimes a year there and i get to see a, like a wide swath of how various places do things and honestly at my level of seniority at red hat one of the biggest benefits i bring to the customer is they know that i've been with red hat almost seven years and so they ask me what are your other clients doing what like mm. are we on base this is what we're thinking like what what do you think about that um what what do you see out there in the wider world and so if there are those types of questions um, we can absolutely talk about those. I mean, Noah Noah handles the kind of the medium size to small business, and I go medium up. So if you're interested in that kind of stuff, I'm sure that we'd both be more than happy to to collect a bunch of questions and entertain call-ins if people wanted to call in and just chat about it. Everything from donut shops up to Fortune 500 companies. Absolutely. We got you covered. Hey, the music in our ears means we're out of time. So... Send your feedback live at AskNoahShow.com. We'd love to hear from you. How can Steve and I serve you? That brings this episode to a close. It's available online at podcast.asknoahshow.com. We'll see you next week, Tuesday, 6 p.m. Central. Have a good one. Mm -hmm.